All right, let me, let me do a quick little uh, spiritual survey check here. Uh, you know, what we're after in the kingdom of God and what we're after in the Christian of life is, is heart engagement with God. How many of you guys just recognize God's not interested in some cold exchange with him where you and I go through formalities or we're in religious settings and like attendance counts. God's after our hearts. He's after the, you know, I don't know what depth of expression you're capable of, whether it, it, it comes out of you with the most force at a Saints game or when you're watching some Hallmark movie. At some point, stuff comes out of you that emotes, something that deeply grabs you in some way. Well, God's after that. That deepest part of who we are, God's after, right? So if I were to put a little survey up before us, I think we've got a survey here. Maybe not. We just have a big giant sign that says pace. There we go. All right. So an engagement category, uh, how would you do? Could you check this box? Or maybe if you're more into the stuff in the corner of your phone, you know, you got the little bars that go up. I don't know how many bars you'd give yourself for connection here. But significant study and reading practice. Would you be able to say, I have a significant study and reading practice, not, not a Google search type thing, not, ooh, look at that curious article that came from the Gospel Coalition. Let me read four paragraphs of that today. Or not even, hey, this little devotional thing that I just kind of read out of rote and then I move on from. I mean, significant encounter with God and his word, meaningful prayer exchange, times where the affections of your heart get awakened, concerns, Concerns about the kingdom of God. Concerns about things that you see that are happening in and around us in this world. Crying out. Right? The Bible's filled with crying out before God. You know, the stuff of God's kingdom getting so deeply embedded in us that we're bugged. We go before God with a bit of an attitude. And, and we're sort of on the verge of taking God to task until we realize, no, nah, he's the perfect one in this exchange. I'm the one who doesn't quite get it. But still, God. What's going on here? How long, oh Lord? You hear the psalmist cry out to God? There's, there's a little intensity. How about consistent church connection? A number of years ago, Tom Rayner, who kind of studies the church as a bit of a cultural analyst for the body of Christ, he observed something that was happening a number of years ago. It was probably at least five years ago when he came out with this observation. That the changing way in which the body of Christ was engaging corporate gatherings... He said, pastor, be ready for this. The person who used to attend four out of four Sundays is now attending three out of four Sundays. The person who used to attend three out of four Sundays a month is now attending two. And the one who's attending twice a month is now attending one. And so I, as soon as I read that, it explained to me a lot of what I was seeing in our own church and in other churches that I relate to that Churches could be growing financially and they could be growing in their membership lists, but they never have to build a bigger building because people just show up for the gatherings less frequently. You understand if everybody in Lakeview Christian Center attended four out of four Sundays, this building couldn't be used. I mean, just look around right now. You know, we pull the kids out of here and we're, you know, we're decently full, but we're probably... 50 to 60% of the people who are regularly part of the church seated here this morning because we, we just don't get around the church the same way as we once did or as maybe even a biblical pattern calls us to. 
serving? Would you be able to check a box off that says, hey, you know, I don't just attend sometimes. I serve in the church. There are things that happen here because I make myself available to serve and connect in the church. Do you tithe? Phil just, just took up our, our offerings. Do, do you give of your finances? So, I mean, so these things show up in the, the finances, in the energy of your life, in the people capacity categories. And so this is where this is a pace issue. When, when our pace of life gets too big, all of these things begin to get affected. They get squeezed, right? So I can't fit as many people in certain ways in my life because my pace is a certain way. I, you know, you don't understand, Keith, I can't afford to tithe because the pace of my financial world is too big. I, I don't have time to serve in the church because pace is already spoken for in my life. So I'm picking one particular category, but all these are a manifestation of pace in our lives. Our pace is very big and they threaten, pace threatens all of these things. And so let me give you a thought here to start with. John Mark Comer wrote a book a few years, a couple of years ago called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And this is where he got that phrase. Dallas Willard once said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Dallas Willard was a, a professor and a theologian, <clears throat> or a number of really helpful books. John Mark Comer says, when I first heard that, I felt a deep resonance with reality. Hurry is the root problem underneath so many of the, of the symptoms of toxicity in our world. And yet Willard's reply is not what I would expect. I live in one of the most secular, progressive cities in America. But if you were to ask me, what is the great challenge to your spiritual life in Portland or New Orleans, wherever we find ourselves? I'm not sure what I'd say. Just, can I just go on record? I think I would say pace. I think I've been saying that for years. I think the thing interfering with our walk with God, our affection for God, our relating to God, our being on mission for God, our fellowship with one another for the glory of God is the, the size of our lives that we're trying to manage accompanying the kingdom of God. Well, this is what he goes on and says, well, most likely I'd say it's modernity or post-modernity or liberal theology or the popularization of the prosperity gospel or the redefinition of sexuality and marriage or the erasure of gender or internet porn, or the millions of questions people have about violence in the Old Testament, or the fall of celebrity pastors, or Donald Trump, I don't know. How would you answer that question? I bet very few of us would default to hurry as our answer. But read the Bible. Satan doesn't show up as a demon with a pitchfork and gravelly smoker voice, or as Will Ferrell with an electric guitar on fire on Saturday Night Live. He's far more intelligent than we give him credit for. Today, you're more likely to run into the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone while you're reading your Bible, or a multi-day Netflix binge, or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram, or a Saturday morning at the office, or another soccer game on a Sunday, or commitment after commitment after commitment in a life of speed. Corrie ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, 
he'll make you busy. There's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. Let me rescue us biblically this morning from the oversimplified approach that I've seen some people take when they engage this category. I'm not standing up here this morning saying, okay, so here's the solution to this. We're going to so simplify our lives. I'm, you know, I'm going to introduce you to some real estate out in the country where you can move away from people. You can get a job that you can work from at home. No more transit involved. Just you and your family. And maybe you'll make room for church a little bit. And just life can just become so simple that finally, whatever this problem is with pace, we, we can get past it. Well, the problem with that is that's not how the Bible introduces our existence in this world. We're actually a people who are called to do something. We're actually called to do a bunch of things. There's a lot that God fills our lives up with. He intended us to be quite busy with a lot of stuff. So the oversimplified life is not a remedy to what we're talking about. And quite honestly, if that's what I was trying to sell anybody today, it ain't going to happen anyway. So we're going to need some help different than that. Let's go back to God's ordinance from the beginning, right? When you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what did God have in mind for you and me as created human beings? Chapter 1, verse 26 in Genesis. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Just stop before you move on to the rest of the story of creation. How would you like that job? That was Adam's job. You are going to give oversight to every bird, every fish, every animal. Don't read past that too fast. This is a job description. Does Adam have much to do in his world? Yes, he does. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so now he's got to have a fast-growing family as well as managing the whole world and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me give you a little recommendation. I'm a quote from the ESV study Bible. And, And this is the largest ESV study Bible I've ever seen in my life. I had to work out just to be able to pick it up this morning. Uh, But I say this because some of us have gotten so busy that Bible study, personal Bible study is is hit and miss. And oftentimes it's hit and miss because we don't get much out of the Bible. Okay, this is a book with a lot more than just the Bible in it, but it'll help you get stuff out of the Bible. So if you don't have a study Bible, I remember the only Bible I had was a little pocket version for years and years and years as a young Christian. And then a study Bible came out. That's how old I am. I don't think there were study Bibles back then, but... Study Bible came out and it was like, oh, this was so revolutionary. As I'm reading through the Bible, there are notes helping me understand something about what's going on here. All right, so if you don't own a study Bible, uh, this is probably electronically available as well. I know it is on certain apps. So uh, get a hold of that, take a picture of this, do whatever you got to do, but you need a study Bible. Here's a quote from the study Bible. 
for this particular passage in Genesis 1. Subdue it and have dominion. The term subdue, it's the Hebrew word kabosh. How many of you guys remember? Put the kabosh on that. Yeah, there you go. The term subdue elsewhere means to bring a people or a land into subjection so that it will yield service to the one subduing it. Here the idea is that the man and woman are to make the earth's resources beneficial for themselves, which implies that they would investigate and develop the earth's resources to make them useful for human beings generally. This command provides a foundation, listen, for wise scientific and technological development. Listen, I know I can sound like, hey, Keith's the dude that is so anti-technology. I know he's a nerdy engineer, but he hates everything technological. Well, part of me does. And part of me should marvel that human beings have been able to figure out how to subdue the earth and make stuff do cool things like iPhones do. Right? Part of that is what God called man to do. So in subdue and have dominion is, is activity. There's managing going on every day. There's steering and directing. There's research and development taking place. There's education and understanding taking place in order for Adam to do these things. There's creativity. There's invention and engineering and artistry that Adam and Eve are called to do. They are not just sipping lemonade at the edge of a beach, thinking big thoughts about God. They actually have a job. So so the key for you and I in our pace is not so much to invent a life that's retreated from everything, right? The monastics tried to do that. You know, we have monasteries in our church history because people became convinced you can't do Christianity in public. There's too much going on. There's too much sin out there that's going to pollute you. There's too much busyness out there. So they built monasteries. And the really spiritual desert fathers went and lived in these monasteries away from everybody else. And they just thought thoughts about God. And they got up early and they had routines, et cetera, et cetera. But you know the problem with that? You can't be salt in the earth in a monastery. You can't advance the gospel to the ends of the world in a monastery. That idea that we would so retreat from everything that interrupts our spirituality is not a biblical thought. God throws us into settings that are challenging, that are going to chew on us, that are going to tempt us, that might even mislead us, that might awaken in us desires that would make us go sideways. And God doesn't say, don't ever find yourself in a setting where your eyes can ever see anything like that. Quite the opposite, right? Deuteronomy chapter 8. God has gathered a people to himself at Mount Sinai. This is where we are in history. He rescues them out of sin in Egypt and he brings them to himself, proclaims himself. Hey, you've been serving the the great ruler in this world all these years in slavery, Pharaoh. I am the king of the universe. I'm calling you to be my people. Come here to Mount Sinai. Let me tell you how that works. And God lays the plan out. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they come to the doorstep of the promised land after 40 years. And the book of Deuteronomy is a revelation of reminding them of what they heard at Sinai. So if you've ever read the Bible, you're kind of, you get to Deuteronomy and you're kind of like, haven't I read all this? Yeah, it's a review. They're just getting reminded before they go into the promised land. And here's what God says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. There's stuff to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and 
possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So you're subduing and possessing land. This sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? So there's an aspect of God's created purpose for humanity that didn't die in the fall. It's, it still kept going. It's just damaged and it's harder. And, and there's a lot of sweat involved in doing it now. But they're to go into the land this way. And then in verse 7, God says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. And wheat and barley of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. In which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and get rich. Okay, it doesn't say that part, but verse 10. And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. They're going into a land where God sends them a brochure in advance that, that, that sounds like something in the Caribbean, right? It's one of those all-inclusives. Come here. There's this, there's that, there's meal after meal. And da, da, da. This is the brochure God breaks out for them. And by the way, they're not in that land, those of us who are more spiritual than the Bible, they're not in the land. They don't need a visit from one of us saying, you guys are here because you're greedy, because you fell for the devil's trick. That's what got you into this land. Oh, where should they be? Well, if you were spiritual, you'd still be in the desert where it's just you and God hanging out together. It was the will of God for them not to be in the desert any longer. It was the will of God for them to be awakened to the fact that there's honey here and there's milk here and there's, there's stuff to do here. There's activities that are here. I'm leading you into all that. How many guys can recognize in this list is all kinds of distracting things are in this list. But I gotta say, ladies, no, no insult here. Uh, Eve was a distraction for Adam. It's him and God. So if, if ever we thought that our solidarity of a creature created in the image of God is just me and God, the rest of y'all shut up. Me and God, me and God, me and God. Can you turn down all the stuff around me? But God created a world that seemed full of distraction. There's stuff in it. There's plants growing. There's things to do. And then God says, here, have a wife. Now, I'm just saying, right? <laughs> Love my wife, but she adds a little bit of uh, attention issue for me in this world. And the Bible actually celebrates that and says that it's a good thing. But I mean, let's face it, sometimes paying attention to my wife means I'm, I'm kind of not paying attention to God in some way. Doesn't it mean that? Or maybe, maybe that's okay in the creation. And then children, be fruitful and multiply. God, did you really want me to be a worshiper? Because, you know, the more kids I have, I mean, the, the first two killed one another. You know, it's like, you sure you want me to add more to this? Because I'm finding, you know, family devotions are a little bit hard when there's weapons involved. So I'm not quite sure how to lead this thing that you've given me. And yet God's will was that they would do exactly that. And then he, he lays out the land before them. Can you notice what's in this land? Right? There's, there's industry in this land. There's an entire farming business in this land. All that stuff that's growing there 
it, it, you got to clear fields. You got to plant seeds. You got to toil the ground. You got to make sure it gets water. You got to help those plants. You got to harvest crops. Then you've got herds. You've got to lead them and feed them and care for them. And they've got needs. And you're going to slaughter some. All this stuff. There's education here. Do you think they just walked in because it was a promised land? Everybody knew how to do all this stuff already? Somebody older who had done it for a while had to sit down with somebody younger and take time out of their day and say, hey, this is how you do this. No, you don't do that that way. No, no, stop doing that. Let's do this again tomorrow. And they just did this over and over and over and over again. There's relationships in the promised land. Husbands and wives, family units are going to do relationship together. And people are going to partner together in industry. And they're going to have activities with each other. They're going to come together in these massive festivals that God created to celebrate God. They're going to do stuff together. I mean, is your calendar starting to fill up the more I say this stuff? There's copper in the hills. It it didn't have little signs on it saying copper right here. You didn't scoop it off the top dirt layer copper. Where was it? Where was the iron in here? It was deep in the mountains. How are you going to get to that? Dig. And they didn't have dynamite back then. So they're going to dig a lot. They're going to take hours and hours out of their day to dig the copper out of the ground that God said was there. That's industry. That's employment. That's jobs. And then God said, Hey, you're going to the promised land, but you know, got to warn you, there's already a people living there. They're not supposed to be there, but they're living there. So you're going to have to go in and kick them out. So uh, you're going to need weapons to do that. And somebody's going to need to train an army to do that. And you're going to be organized. and have to be strategies when you show up there to fight these guys. Oh, and by the way, even when you kick them out, there's going to be enemies all around you. And, and they're going to come intrude into the nation from time to time. And so you're going to need warfare. You're going to have conflicts there. Can, can you understand? This is a busy life. There's a lot to do in the promised land that's going to capture their attention. Which fosters God to say this in verse 10. You shall eat and be full and shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. There was something about all this activity that was supposed to do something in the human heart. It was supposed to awaken something in us. It was supposed to be experiential. It was supposed to make us go, "Mm, did you taste that? I mean, I know, I didn't even know what honey was. We've been hanging out in the desert in Egypt. But man, the honey is unbelievable. Did you try that? They were supposed to partake of those things. And those things were supposed to have an impact on them. What impact was it supposed to have? This is key. You shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, why? Why? For all the good that he's given you. I know there's something about, I don't know when this, you know, probably stoicism helped with this. You get Greek thought married with the church over history. You still have that happening today. So it can feel like somberness and seriousness is what real disciples are about. You get around people who really love God. They don't laugh a lot. Have you looked at the world today? It's it's a horrible place. They're just serious. They're serious about God. They got Bible passages and they can discuss some things with you. And they want to know why you weren't in prayer last week, by the way. They're serious. Um, I read these verses and, and you have to know God. So there has to be a seriousness about learning God. But there's celebration in this passage. 
There's people doing life, and as they do life, something goes off on the inside of them that they transfer back to God over and over and over again. They, they are not merely these people who keep God out of the equation. They pull God into the everyday enjoyments of life. All the stuff that can start feeling like it's distractions, the remedy for pace is to pull God into them. It's not to push God out of those things. But God recognizes in this world, there's going to be some real temptation that comes to us. So as he lays out the land and he does not say, do not go in because I know you're going to get distracted by all this stuff. He tells them, go in, right? But then he says in verse 11, take care, lest you forget the Lord, your God. If there's anything that that pace is a concern about, the way we do our lives, the pace of our lives, the pace of what we mentally focus on, pay attention to, engage with our energy and our emotions and our thoughts has the ability to push God further and further and further to the edge of our lives and create what that passage is concerned about. Lest you forget about God. And now all you remember is how to invent that next tool that will go deeper into that mountain to get the copper that's there. And how to get a bigger farm to grow more crops to create that food that I so enjoy. And how to go to war with that. You can just, that can become all that life is about now. And the God who brought us into this so that we might have an, an awakening. These things were supposed to awaken in us. A sense of something that makes us turn back to God and go, wow, God, wow, had no idea. God, I mean, so there is a moment where these things, they have to be experienced in order for there to be a transfer. Just tell you, if you've never had honey, you can't celebrate with me. You can't. You don't know what sweetness is. I'm trying to get you to describe it to you. I'm a teacher. I'm going to teach you. I can't teach you sweetness. I teach you a vocabulary word. You got to actually eat it. And when it hits your mouth, you'll learn just like that. Can I just tell, can I awaken everybody in here, old and young, but young people especially, your experience of God is too weak and too small, and you are in danger of what that's going to produce. Your word concepts, you want to you eat sweet stuff? Let me just feed it to you. That'll make you go back for more. Me standing up and say, there's a glucose formula that looks like this in the chemistry realm, and it's got this many molecules of this and this many molecules of that. It interacts with taste buds that have nerve endings. I can teach you all that stuff. But if I give you a Snickers bar, it'll have a different impact. <laughs> so there's a God here who invites us into experiencing the world that he's created and the wiring that he's put in us. And as we do that, we need God in that moment with us so that we can transfer that back to him so that our, our innards get awakened to God in ways that all this was designed to do. And if God thought it's safer and better for them to stay in the desert, he would have ended up with a people who worship like desert people. God, the, this, there is a lot of sand here, God. A 
lot of it. You, I think you said a promise to Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the grains of the sand. That's a lot. What else can we talk about? That's the kind of worshipers that would have been created. But when you go into the land and you experience the creation of God and you have to depend upon him and you have to look to him and trust him and take in the things that he does and seek his protection for the things that are there and work through conflicts with each other and you need him to do that. You're going to get a whole different revelation of God. And then you're going to inhabit this verse. You shall bless the Lord, your God. So let me give you two things that touch our creation of pace, right? Two focuses that create our pace. Uh, one is, is, is the inner desires that we all have. And second is the outward actions, right? So if, as, as simple as I can get it, you can't do life without both of those things. In our existence, inner desires and passions, outward expressions and practices. So the first one is guard your passions in order to set your pace. Right. And I use this phrase before you'll remember this phrase. Uh, this is the basic formula of people do what they want to do. Something has to come into our life to give us a want to. I want to do that. Now, you may want to do that partially out of a sense of self-protection or fear or security. And so you do something because you're trying to, you're trying to be safer. Or it, it could be something of a reward, something of a benefit that's going to come into my life. This is going to be so good. And that goes off in you and it's real to you in such a way that you, I, I want to do that. But, but here's a critical ingredient. God creates man. When Adam shows up on the scene, the neurology, the physical, spiritual dimensions of his life are all wired together by God. And they're wired to do something. Do you know what the one most important thing that Adam is wired to do? He's wired to worship. He is a created being whose highest calling is to worship God, which means there's you know, some mechanics involved here. Worship for Adam is going to mean he's, he's got to observe something in God. He's, he's got to see something in God, and then he's got to be able to respond to that. God gives him intellect. God gives him emotions. God gives him spiritual dimensions working on the inside in ways that we haven't figured out. But he gets to observe something in God and respond to it. Observe something in God and respond to it. Observe something in God and respond to it. So there's a purpose for going into the land because it, it, gives, it gives God some canvas to draw himself on. Adam, look at this. Look at me. Adam, understand who I am. Look. Look at the texture. You feel the temperature difference, Adam? Do you see color? Adam, do you even, have you even thought for a second yet that this could all be in black and white? Your taste buds, pretty cool, aren't they? I mean, God does all this stuff so that you and I have some vocabulary to interact with him about. We need awesome. All right, my question is, what do you call an awesome? 
what is really, really awesome to us. Because the more awesome something is, the more it draws me to it. What am I amazed with, dazzled by? Oh, I gotta have that. Oh, and I'm freaking out if I don't. What, what's doing that for us? Well, it, it could be that, that we have forgotten God and we've fallen in love with creation in some ways and personal reward and benefit. And, and, and our, our sense of worship has gone dull. We, we, we tend to worship creation for what it can do for us rather than the creator who we were designed for. And these things weren't supposed to be the end all for us. They were supposed to make us engage God more fully. But you have to actually enjoy the things of God for you to be able to do that. Right? For any of us, me included, to sit around in some sourpuss reality with the only idea that, that spirituality is serious and somber. And that's the only definition that I've got. I, I don't know what you look like. Maybe I'm going to ask Stephen Kelly afterwards. What do people look like when you were leading them this morning? Did, did you just stand here and mouth some words? Maybe not even sing at all. I and mean, part of that's not, that's not a leader problem. That's a bucket problem, right? Came in here and your bucket didn't have anything in it. So, you know, Stephen did a good job of kicking the bucket over, but there was nothing in there to spill out. Because when you looked out at creation, you just saw creation and you saw what it can do for you. And maybe it's not doing much for you right now. Maybe your finances are upside down. Maybe your world isn't going well. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe your kids are as difficult and you're wanting to multiply. That was not a good idea. I should have just gone with one kid. Because what what you look at creation for is something to just transfer back to you. I, I, I want this to make me feel a certain way. God wanted it to make you see him a certain way. Then when we see him, we turn into worshipers, which makes everything else make sense in our universe. We are first worshipers. So if you're here this morning and you don't have a big God who owns you and he owns your affections, And he owns the definitions for your life. And you are so amazed and so happy to have entrusted him. And he is your father. You respect and love being around him. Can I just say, if that category doesn't exist in your life, everything else about your life is screwed up. Can I say screwed up? Someone's going to correct me for that, I know. It ain't right. Let's just say it that way. Because we're designed first and foremost to be worshipers. Let me just jump to the second thing before I run out of time. All right, so worship is an affection of the heart thing. It's an affection toward God. You understand you can be in this building this morning and not be worshiping, right? Just enjoying the air conditioning, a little intellectual stimulation, maybe a debate in your head about, hmm, I don't think that's right. Worship is about affection, delight, value, prizing. Now, God knew that we would need some help in the practical category. For us to live in a fallen world, we would need help doing practical things that would foster inner desires in us. So these two things are are inseparable. Passions and practice. Passions and practice are inseparable. So God stands at Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, stands at the entrance gate of the promised land. And he says, okay, kids, before we go in, let me just remind you of some things. And that's what Deuteronomy is, if, if you will. Deuteronomy is that moment where for those of you who kind of do the Disney thing, it, it's the conversation you have with your kids on your way into the theme park, right? But 
This is what kids don't figure out, but this is what parents know. Uh, most of you, I, I hope, and some of you are older adults, and, and I hope you've outgrown Peter Pan's flight and all that kind of stuff. I hope you've kind of outgrown that. But why are you really there with your kids and your grandchildren? Because you want to watch them delight. You want to watch them light up. You want to watch joy go off in their heart and them turn back to you somehow and just share it with you. That's why you're there. All right, this is God on his way into the promised land. Uh, Can you guys, when you get in the promised land, just not run off and forget me? Can you pull me into your joy? Can you include me in everything you eat? and everything you dig out of the ground, and every successful business that you raise up, and the ways in which your families are going, can, can you, when you ride the rides that I've provided for you, can you get off the ride and make a beeline back to me and go, oh my gosh, thank you so much for bringing me to Disney World. This has been so much fun. I have had the greatest time of my life. What does that do for you as a parent or as a grandparent? Well, there's something similar in God in that. So God goes into the promised land, but in this world, God's interaction with us and with them in particular is a mediated interaction. You don't have this direct full access to God. That's the new heaven and the new earth. So even today in our day, the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of God to us. So it's not full blown head on. It's partial. And in the tabernacle of the Old Testament, it was even more partial. So God says, okay, kids, we're going into the promised land here. Let me remember, let you guys remember something. Deuteronomy is God standing up. Hey, remember this. The centerpiece of our time in the promised land is the tabernacle. That's what's at the center of you being a people and me being your God, right? So thought from Alec Motier, he says, when the people moved on from Sinai, they took the values of Sinai with them. The Lord who came to the people at Sinai continued to live among them. The tabernacle, its plan and its manufacture does not make for fascinating reading, but it expresses one of the Bible's greatest truths, the reality of the indwelling God. This was at the center of God saying, make sure when you get in the land and you ride all the rides, you don't forget about me. What in particular did you mean, God? And there's a whole list. I put some things in here. This is, this is what was learned at Mount Sinai. Build your lives this way with me at the center. Remember that thing of, of offerings and sacrifices? The tabernacle was a place where animals were being slain and offerings were being made. So God says, hey, here's the way that you don't forget about me. That you don't forget that there's this issue between me and you called sin. And that you don't forget that I'm a holy God and that you never start treating me so casually that your sins don't matter. And so the way I'm going to help you remember that your sins don't matter is I'm going to want you to confess your sins to me. I'm going to want you to interact with that which you'd like to not interact with about yourself. That you did something last week or you've done something for the hundredth time and you've refused to change and there's issues of pride. I want you to stare at all that. Because if you blow that off, when you come to me, you won't understand my mercy and my grace, and my compassion, and the depth of my love, because you think you're easy to love. So take a good look at yourself, and then come bring an animal with you, and kill the animal, because that's what you deserve. 
are any of us doing this very regularly? This is how God said, hey, remember something here. There's this whole sacrificial world I'm creating in this tabernacle. It wasn't just like going to some museum. Oh, the God Museum. Let's go to the God Museum. There was blood all over the place. There were dead animals everywhere. That was reminding them of something. They were being put in touch with the idea that this God is holy. And yet I still get to come to him. And he will deal with my sins in mercy. And I'll transfer them to this animal. So that's the whole offering thing. Then there's this weekly Sabbath idea. God interrupted their pace. That's what that was. On the seventh day, you're going to rest. Not sure we're doing that very well, right? And why is that? Because we've got a lot to do. I need every hour of every day. Matter of fact, I need more hours in every day. I mean, just a few more because I've got so much to do. And God says, hey, you know what? As a means of helping you not forget me, how about you interrupt everything that you're doing one day out of the week? Because this is the same exact principle of the tithe, by the way. Where God turns around and says, hey, how about you take a tenth of everything that comes to you and give it to me? And immediately, we're like, well, God, I, I can't do that. I'm overspent. I can't do Sundays either because I'm, I'm overspent. See, this is a pace problem. And God specifically interacts with that pace problem and says, hey, here's how I want you not to forget about me. I want you to set aside a day each week. And I want you to rest and think big thoughts of me and just enjoy the creation that I've given you. And don't do a thing of work. Don't advance anything. Don't create anything. Don't spend yourself, etc. Right? That's what that was. One commentator says, sacred assemblies or proclamations were an important part of religious practice in the ancient world. They referred to local or national gatherings for public corporate worship. The people were summoned together, listen, away from their occupational work, away from. God intended to mess with our schedule. When he said, set apart a day for me where you don't do anything else but this. this. This is why in our modern world, see, these values get lost. And Sunday morning becomes an option. Maybe I'll be there. Maybe I won't because it just depends on how busy the weekend was. What else I have going on. And I've got to use Sunday morning, you understand? Because everything else is so hectic. And God says, that's exactly the problem. And with that pace of life, I can guarantee you this. You are going to forget about me. And pace is going to be a problem because it's interrupting our knowing God. Listen, there's a moment when you get to the seventh day and you say, okay, God, this day is just yours, where it's, it messes with the rest of your week, doesn't it? It creates faith for the rest of these places. Okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor you here, but I know that's going to mess everything else up. And God says, hey, I'm going to give you another way to honor me. Every seven years, I want you to shut everything down for a whole year. Now, all you businessmen are thinking, how on earth could you have run a profitable country, uh, company? If you shut everything down every seven years. I mean, nothing going on. Yeah, let, let the fields rest. Don't plant. Don't harvest. Just, just let them rest that entire year. The only way you could do that is if your faith had been awakened to God and you looked to him in amazing trust and said, okay, God, because you said it and because I know you, I could do that. I could do that. Now, let me just tell you, God does not take this lightly. 
probably the biggest section of the Bible, begins with Isaiah and runs through the exile. Do you know why they were in exile? Do you know why they were there for 70 years? Because God took every year that they failed to let the land rest and he collected them. And when he collected 70 of them, he said, I will now let the land rest and you will go live over here for 70 years. Because every seven years, I told you, let the land rest. Is God really concerned just about dirt and nutrients? Or is God concerned that there is a people who will forget me unless they learn to depend upon me? So I'm going to interrupt their life. And every seven years, they're going to have to look to me in faith in an amazing way. And that's going to protect them. And they didn't do it. And God took it serious. If you look at the rest of what God creates in the tabernacle, there's like seven festivals that dot the landscape of every year. I love that they're called festivals, by the way. Because they're opportunities to come together with the people of God and celebrate God. And every one of them has got a theme in it. Passover, remembering the blood that was spread over doorposts where God's mercy would come and judgment fell on everybody else, but not on God's people. Every year, come together and celebrate that. What's it supposed to look like? Well, maybe there's some somber recollection of that. Lives were lost. Blood was shed. But there's a lot of celebration there. Right, that should be even. Stephen, just come up and lead us in Passover celebration. Woo! That should be hooping and hollering. That should be blown away. Why did we get spared? Because we put red stuff over the top of our door and the rest of the nation got judged. Why didn't we get judged? Do you ever sing about the mercy of God out of that revelation? And if we don't, it's because we don't stare at God. Take him in. And be deeply affected and become worshipers. There's a first fruits festival. There's a festival of weeks. Both of these had to do with harvest. God stuck a festival and said, hey, you know when you start depending upon your income from those crops? Why don't you let me interrupt that? First fruits. The first time you cut a sheaf out of the field and you go, oh, look, we got a fresh crop this year. Okay, stop, throw a festival and, and recognize that I provided that for you. The rest of it will come from me too. That's what God does here. Festival of trumpets, day of atonement, right? Transferring guilt to the scapegoat and to the other that's been slain. God reminding us there's a way to get rid of your sin. He's created it. And there's a celebration here as well. Listen, today, you and I interrupt the pace of life with festivals, right? And even in our city, we're a city of festivals. We're looking for stuff to do to celebrate something. So, you know, there's Mardi Gras, and there's Jazz Fest, and there's French Quarter Fest, October Fest. There's all these things that, that's something for us to celebrate. Now, before you find, oh, that's what the world does. Hey, God's looking for us to celebrate something that we have found in him like that. Some people are a little bit more faithful with Jazz Fest than they are with Church Fest. But anyway, just a sideswipe, Sorry. One more thought from the giant ESV study Bible available to you at bookstores everywhere. Um, the Sabbath principle permeates each of these feasts, which are intended, listen, to express the divine human relationship. Each feast requires, one, cessation from ordinary work. You're going to have to stop doing something. And two, Dedication to the Lord by means of offerings, bringing something of your life to him. All right, so those two things, I would say, those two things. 
are pace protectors for us. You and I live in a hard, hard setting. Seth, you can come back up wherever you are. We live in a hard setting, a hard time. It is not easy to get a hold of pace in our lives. But can, can I suggest a starting point that, that's a little bit more biblical than, you know, buying the, the best, latest organizational app that will help you schedule your day and give you all the prompts and reminders that you need. And this thing's going to actually get you on top of all the hectic pace elements. Um, hey, that, that'll be helpful. I wouldn't suggest you don't do that because there's a lot to manage. But you know where the Bible starts? The Bible starts with what's the desire of my heart like? Because I'm a worshiper. So it, it has to do with what am, what am I really, really after in this life? What does the worship part of me want to engage more than anything else? You can see, because out of that, people do what they want to do. That on the inside, well, then it will need some help practically. I'd love to just say, if we just get our insides right, uh, we live in a fallen world. My body wants to still do some weird stuff. So insides is a start. Then I need some practices. I need some priorities in my life. So here's what I want us to pray about this morning. And, you know, I'm not asking anybody to raise a hand or or just just kind of be honest with yourself. What's what's the worship and affection level like in your heart toward God? What's that like? What kind of delight goes off on the inside of you? Giddiness. Wow. When was the last time you just... I was studying this this week. I mean, I'm, I'm not a great pace person. Um, anybody who knows me would say, hey, dude, do you practice any of this? <laughs> um, well, the delight in God part, yeah. The overcrowded, scheduled life, having a hard time with that. But I just, I just sat in my backyard the sun was going down. Just observe the artistry of God as the colors changed and the texture of puffy clouds had a little bit of gray in them, a little bit of blue in them, a layer of orange. And I just thought, you know, Lord, that could just be so boring. You know, it could be like a light switch. It's daytime, boom, it's nighttime. It's like this dramatic display. The sun goes down and the day ends and God fills his creation. I thought, Lord, how many times have I stared at that and forgotten about you? How many times have I engaged something that's filled with pleasure and enjoyment that you wired into that? You wanted me to run to that ride and get on it and be blown away by it. And then I just ran to the next ride. Next thing you know, I was lost in the theme park. Don't even know where my parents are. Appreciate the elders coming, praying with me before the service. And one of the guys was, was just praying. Lord, don't make us better time managers. 
productivity schedulers. Because that's really not what we're after. If we want to adjust our pace, God, would you make us better worshipers who have entered into this dazzling creation that you've made with all of its texture and relationships and friendships and activity because every one of those would provide us an opportunity to turn back to you and just go, wow, wow. God, it didn't, it didn't need to look like that. It didn't need to taste like that. It you did that. And I think when my heart gets awakened toward God, I will begin to change my schedule. I, I will make room for him in ways that he wants in my heart and in my life. You know, the old timer folks used to call stuff like this revival. Revival wasn't the awakening of people dressing a certain way and having a certain hairstyle. Well, if you go far enough back, it felt that way. Revival was an awakening of our heart's affections toward God. That's what revival was. So could we stand up together and just pray and ask the Lord for that kind of revival among us in this age of difficult pace? Thank you for the mercy and the grace that spills out of your nature that runs to us, Lord, who are lost in the theme park of life. And maybe we're lost and we're not even looking for you. We're just so busy just trying to run to the next thing. And you run us down and find us. And I thank you that this moment in this summer of 2022, Lord, you have run into the noise of the pace of our lives. Because, Lord, there's, there's no way in your goodness and mercy and your affection for us, there's no way to let us become worshipers of other things at the expense of what you created us for. Lord, that won't answer to your glory and it won't produce good in our lives. So Father, maybe we start with confession as we approach the tabernacle. And each of us just own our own moment. Lord, I, I just confess I'm... I'm too busy for you. Now, I've forgotten you in a lot of ways. So Lord, this morning I'm asking for your grace because I can't, I can't do this myself to awaken my heart to you once again. No matter how noisy this world's going to get, no matter how troubled it will be, no matter how many conflicts there are, no matter how many enemies in the land there could be, no matter how many opportunities there are to taste something or build something or do something, Lord, would you awaken worship in my soul? The ability for me to observe God in all the ways you've put yourself on display and for me to 
turn to you in those moments and just go, wow, Lord, you are amazing. You are the treasure above all other treasures. You are the God I love and what I want more in this world than anything else. Lord, would you awaken that longing in our hearts and in our souls. So Lord, as we conclude our time of staring at this problem of pace, Lord, nothing, nothing we've talked about would fix that. Lord, nothing will fix it permanently, but nothing will put a dent in it and adjust it like awakening worship of you in our souls. So Lord, help us with that. And Lord, help us pay attention that your presence mediated by something as it is needs tabernacle-like settings, which means we've got to be in a particular place at a particular time doing some particular things so that our hearts get transformed. Lord, I pray that for myself. Lord, I pray it for every one of us in this church. Lord, I pray for those who are online watching us today. God, this above all other things, Lord, we long for. Awaken worship afresh in our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Hey guys, as always, uh, it's a place where you need prayer. There is prayer available to you, whatever your situation is. Come and ask God, come and agree with a prayer partner and just see what God will do. So those guys are available in the front here to, to meet with you.